Hi, Christian. Welcome to Network Capital. We're very excited to have a conversation with you about your career, um, your very adventurous experiments with entrepreneurship, academia, and most importantly, your wonderful book, The Serendipity Mindset, that essentially forms one core pillar of Network Capital. So, Christian, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do today? Absolutely. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so I, you know, I started out as a rebellious teacher. I used to be that who had to repeat a year in high school, who was kicked out of school and uh, transferred this into my driving style somehow, um, you know, probably holding the unofficial world record of how many dustbins you can knock over on your way to school. And then one day I wasn't so lucky anymore. I smashed into four parked cars, all cars completely crashed, including my own. And I won't forget the policeman who came to the scene and who said, oh my God, he's still alive. So this idea that I was supposed to be dead, like that stuck um, with me and it kind of put me on this intense search for meaning. I asked myself all these weird questions, you know, if I would have died, who would have come to my funeral? Who would have actually cared? Was it all worth it? And I had only depressing answers at that point. And so I started reading all these books and um, my favorite actually, um, uh, or the book that became my favorite was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is all about how do you find meaning in tough situations and you know the more I kind of uh, inquired on this journey the more I realized what I enjoy the most doing is connecting ideas connecting people and so I started out as a community builder then went into kind of building enterprises and social enterprises that help people make ideas happen and now in academia as well kind of trying to figure out how do we develop purpose-driven organizations and what I found fascinating is that you know wherever I looked the most successful purpose-driven inspiring people they had something in common. And I think, Utkarsh, you have that in common as well in terms of is this idea where, you know, they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They, they see something in the unexpected and then turn that into positive outcomes. And so I got really fascinated by the question of how do we, is there a way to develop a science-based framework for cultivating serendipity? And then essentially, is there a way that we can turn that into science-informed practices that help us build that muscle for the unexpected? What a fascinating introduction of a super interesting life, Christian. Um, we want to dive deep into everything that you've just said. Tell us a bit about uh, how Sandbox came into being and how did you go from being a rebellious teenager? Tell us why you were a rebellious teenager and where you grew up to the formulation of Sandbox. Like, Help us think through because when I look at you, I see somebody who's been following his curiosity passionately. Uh, walk us through that journey. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I'm so uh, passionate about, you know, thinking about how we can rethink the education system is that I feel for people like me who had a lot of energy, who had a lot of ideas, there wasn't a channel for that in, in school. And so, you know, I, I um, was mostly focused on projects outside of school, um, you know, I used to work in a coffee shop where my boss was an amazing entrepreneur. And so he would always kind of get me into entrepreneurial pursuits. We would, you know, knock on doors and sell t-shirts or drive around cakes and all these kind of different types of things. Um, and all of this was much more exciting than, than spending time in school. Um, and, you know, what, what that kind of accident did and, and why that kind of um, left such a mark was because it was that question of, okay, well, you can do all these things and you can do that in the day to day. But when you will be looking back at some point, 
will it have been worth it? And so I think that's been a driving force. Um, I had COVID uh, early last year um, with severe breathing problems and so on. And there was again a reminder of how quickly life can be over and that postponing things to later uh, just doesn't work in a world where, you know, it's just so many things that could happen. You can't plan them out anyways. And so kind of the transition really happened throughout that period of trying to find some kind of meaning, trying to figure out what could be platforms to channel that. Like if, if, if there is this longing to do something meaningful, what is a platform that allows doing that? And so I initially figured, um, you know, during my kind of like, uh, as you can imagine, you know, I, I had to send a lot of applications to undergrad uh, universities and most of them declined me. And those <laughs> few that accepted me, uh, the one was, was a wonderful one that um, in a way allowed also, you know, to get very engaged in different types of societies. And so um, I felt like the first outlet for that energy was kind of student societies. And then at some point, coincidentally, during my postgrad, I ran into um, my then, you know, who would become my co-founders at, at Sandbox. And um, we kind of shared this passion for how do we bring people together who are similar to us, who want to change something in the world, bring them together and help them make the ideas happen. And, and so Sandbox then serendipitously emerged out of um, a lot of those kind of conversations. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm indebted uh, deeply to, to um, those um, uh, co-founders who essentially, you know, um, they've been building conferences and building amazing things for, for their whole life. And so it was a beautiful compliment to, to bring that together. Yeah, I, I noticed that serendipity and curiosity have been two constants in your life. Like what was the thesis on which Sandbox was founded? And what were the early days like? You know, it's interesting because uh, initially we, we looked at Sandbox as a serendipity accelerator. Um, if you would go to an event and you would uh, be at a dinner, people would be like, oh my God, such a coincidence all the time. Like coincidences seem to happen everywhere. And I mean, the, the thesis behind um, um, Sandbox was really to say, usually when you have people who are very inspiring and who want to push the boundaries, they are connected in their own fields. But mindset-wise, they're much closer to people in other fields who are similarly pushing the boundaries. And so there wasn't a platform that would bring people together in a trusted environment and really help them make those ideas happen. And so um, Sandbox was really kind of as a response to that and, and a very kind of community-driven, hub-based model where you would say, you know, let's build in, in different cities local communities where people can locally engage with each other. And then let's have global platforms being that conferences, being that internal groups um, from Facebook groups to other types of groups um, that help them connect uh, globally. But the idea would be if you're a sandboxer in Nairobi and you go to Beijing, you have a couch to crash, you have a person you can co-work with and so on. And so it's really this idea of, of building a, a meaningful relationship with people you don't know yet, but because you have so much in common in terms of mindset, um, and you, you will have a strong common denominator. And in a way, it was really about saying diversity in terms of ideas, but, but commonalities in terms of values and, and what one believes in. You know, um, the serendipity accelerator concept sounds so interesting because the serendipity has been in play on network capital as well. I can't tell you how many people on network capital have said, you got to have a conversation with Christian. I said, I think I've met him in Davos uh, and uh, a few other places. I, I need to have that conversation. But talk to us about Serendipity Accelerator. This was like you observing that serendipity happens. But when did you think that, you know, there is a new community or a com company that has to be made? 
and what should be the founding philosophy of it. Because Sandbox, like uh, I think the way you are structured is slightly different from many other communities. It's not uh, focused on any, any particular career goal like say Network Capital is. Uh, it's more focused on let's seeing what the magic can happen. So walk us through those early days of thinking through the concept. Yeah, well, it was very based on, on the idea that if you want to truly develop meaningful relationship as a young person, you know, it's nice if cool stuff happens now, but the really big things will happen in a few years once you build really deep um, relationships. And so the community was really based on this principle to say, hey, how do you make sure that those people, um, you know, have the types of conversations that 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 bring bring you closer together emotionally and not only professionally. And so, you know, we had something called the non-asshole rule where um, people who would sort of kind of try to get into the community, um, you know, it would be about wow factors, so about the idea of, you know, is that someone who, if you would present your idea at a dinner table in the evening, people would go, wow, this is amazing. Um, at the same time as kind of fulfilling a couple of other criteria, but then most importantly, the non-asshole factor, which is about the idea of being kind and being, being generous and so on. And so it's really kind of um, based around the idea that um, at the end of the day, you can only real, build real trust and scale real trust if you, if you have those, um, those people in, in the community. Um, what I found interesting on that journey is, I mean, we've had a lot of kind of hard learnings on that journey. And I'm, you know, I'm not that involved anymore. I'm now kind of like excited member uh, that is part of it but um you know what what's been fascinating on that kind of longer term journey was to see how in a way we started it as a community that was in its model bottom up right so you have local ambassadors who locally identify people and that is essentially allowed it to keep it very close-knit locally but at the same time also connected across different hubs so it was a hub-based model um, but but at the same time, we we weren't that good at building a company around it that would actually financially sustain it. Because as you have probably seen with, with your community, um, it's one thing to build a very strong community. And then the other thing is how to build an integrated model that makes it really uh, sustainable in the long run. And, you know, we learned, like we came out of entrepreneurship. So we thought, okay, let's build like some kind of business model around it, like a conference model or a sponsorship model or something. Um, but we realized later it would have been much better probably to just build a foundation around it or something that protects it in a way that that, that really integrates with it because everything um, that we did on the kind of commercial side, you know, everything from sponsorship to um, innovation consulting and other things, um, always a little bit kind of distracted from the core purpose of the, the community itself, which was to help its, its talents grow. And so I think, um, the beautiful thing of, of Sandbox today is that it is completely community driven that essentially kind of it, it disembedded more and more from the company. And I think that's how it's supposed to be, to be more members driven um, and less kind of um, um, top down. And, and so I think, you know, from a community perspective, I found it fascinating, this constant tension between when you build a, a bottom up community, but you have a company that tries to somehow make sense out of it. By definition, you will have some kind of friction, and, and organizing this, I think, is a, is a fascinating challenge for for community builders. In your uh, in your book and in your article in the Aon and others, you talk about uh, the challenge of uh, the community versus company, uh, the slight dissonance that exists in it. Could you talk us uh, through some of the lessons because? In one way, you, you've built a really strong uh, community of people who are dedicated, who care about it. Like I've spoken to many, many, many sandboxers who are also shapers and part of 
other communities. Um, but building a community and build, building a business uh, sometimes can be, um, you know, going in different directions. When did you realize that uh, perhaps uh, the direction might be different? And how did you realize that you need to pivot to a different format? Well, I think that, that it became most clear when we took in the first investors and the first investors were, you know, essentially what we probably would consider quote unquote impact investors or at least, you know, people close to us who similarly believed in the mission and the vision and said, yes, great, like this is all about building something amazing that, you know, brings those people together who hopefully will run the world in, in, in a couple of decades. And so it's beautiful as a kind of um, a social uh, impact uh, type type venture. Um, and then over time, I think we, we realized increasingly that due to bringing in more and more investors, there also were a couple of more dynamics around, okay, so what is the return on XYZ? How does it work now? And, and so on. And I think, um, you know, the more we got into those kind of dynamics, the more we realized, wow, okay, now you actually have a commitment in, in some way um, to different logics and, and figuring that out was, was certainly a challenge. I mean, we, for some time, for example, were thinking about um, making it more of a hybrid organization, right? Where you would say the community is here, um, self-sustained and then here's a here's a company then we were trying around with different models and and then at some point um, and I think that was what, what was fascinating is how the community in a way um, was extremely strongly self-organizing um, around a, a more bottom-up model and I think um, that to us in a way was both um, a little bit painful because we felt wow like we're losing control in some way and then on the other hand it was beautiful to see actually wow there's so much kind of identity that is in that community that essentially lets people self-organize around uh, around some of this. And so I think in terms of key learnings, like one learning was really around what I mentioned earlier around how do you from day one think about how this can be self-sustained in a way that protects the, the core of the community um, in a way and uh, what is an integrated model to do that? Um, and is it, you know, is it a kind of endowment that uh, is there for the next hundred years that allows that to do, I think, education institutions, there's a lot to learn from them. Um, is it like an integrated model where every person who joins the community also owns part of the community so that if there is kind of some commercial activity that they are part of um, benefiting from that commercial activity. But being honest with you, I think if, if I would do it all over again, and I think that's the sentiment with, with some of my co-founders as well, what we would probably do differently is to say that as soon as you introduce some kind of commercial logic being that via a company that somehow is involved or whatever it is, um, everything else like is 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 a bit more under risk because you now, for example, have an incentive to include more entrepreneurs who pull in different types of sponsors than the artist who might not pull in the kind of sponsor, but who actually might bring in a lot for the community itself. And so long story short, I think um, when conceptualizing a community, I feel um, the, the difference between relational and transactional really being around that if you want to build a, a truly relational community, um, you know, keeping in a way uh, commercial uh, uh, considerations uh, as far as possible. And again, that's that's it's a tough job. And I think most communities I know have have struggled uh, on that end. I think there's very few communities I can think of who really kind of have done that in a scalable way. I think it's it's always beautiful to do that locally in some ways, but like scaling that up, I think that's the the growing pains of communities and. Um, you know, we're constantly learning, I guess. I mean, um, I've been involved in a couple of other communities now, and I think that's, that's consistently the challenge. How do you scale trust? So how do you scale 
um, you know, a community. I think that's one which Sandbox has worked uh, pretty well and has done pretty well. But then again, how do you also trust the organization, uh, scale the organization around it? I think that's a challenge I haven't seen um, solved in a very sustainable way yet. Absolutely. And uh, what we realize is that uh, trust capital, social capital, network capital, and financial capital they don't necessarily mean the same without uh, setting certain, um, you know, boundary conditions in place. So that's, uh, you know, the growing up pains, but that has taught you so much about networks and how they work and what's diversity, what's inclusion, what's, uh, you know, what's inner circle, outer circle. So talk to us about what you've learned about networks uh, and serendipity, because that essentially led to your best-selling book, which, uh, we're all here on Network Capital, a big fan of. Yeah, it, well, it's really, I mean, if you think about it and, and maybe briefly about the inclusion question, because I think that at, at Sandbox, right, we we were five male founders, right? Five male white kids coming out of, out of Switzerland and Germany. Like we, you know, we went out there and we were like, yeah, we're building a global community. But then when you looked at the kind of, you know, how the founding team looked like, that was like 12, 13 years ago. So that was... And before the, the very important public conversations happened around, around that and scale. And so we, I didn't realize how, in a way, the way you frame things such as language um, is, is, is self, it, it, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you say something like, um, uh, we want the leading young innovators of the world to unite here in XYZ, like it's a very kind of massive masculine like out there type language and so it attracts a lot of people who self-identify as this but the person who actually gets things done who actually is kind of like sitting somewhere might be you know it might not be a gendered question but there is probably a tendency that some um some, some genders do that more than, than other genders and so i think we learned a lot around how because we were like a very male kind of founding team like the language and everything else we use was also very informed by this and so i think over time we learned okay hey there's actually, um, it's really important to, to reframe language, to reframe um, who we hire, how we hire, who we select, how we select, all these different types of questions. Um, but I think when it comes to networks and serendipity, there's so much around how, in a way, when you think about serendipity as this unexpected good luck that happens, uh, you know, because we see something in a moment, um, and maybe, you know, to give you the, the, the quintessential example of, let's say, a couple of decades ago where some researchers were trying to figure out a medication against angina, the, the disease, and there was some kind of movement happening in male participants' trousers, and uh, they were like, oh my god, what's happening there? Um, and, you know, it, that was an unexpected moment, but now it's about saying, oh wow, my, maybe there is something in that moment. And so they saw that and they said, well, you know, there might be a lot of men in the world who might have a similar problem in that department, and that there's actually no movement happening in that department, and so that's how Viagra evolved. Right, so Viagra, up to 50% of innovations and inventions, they tend to come out of the unexpected. They tend to come out of this unexpected moment. But a lot of times, it's it's a team effort, right? We always um, associate like one individual with something like this. But when you build communities, but also more generally, when you think about um, you know someone who who connects people and ideas, you realize that actually serendipity a lot of times comes via different people helping one reflect or helping someone connect the dots. And so I think the, the importance of networks is really about, you know, not only bringing the right people together who then can figure things out, but also, you know, if, if you think about the great things in life that came unexpectedly, there's usually one or two people who were in some way involved 
um, helping connect dots. And so I think um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of really thinking about how do we, you know, build those kind of networks around us as individuals as well. How do we think about, um, you know, who are these five people around me whom I interact the most with, who really kind of shape my life and shape who I am, who are the kind of other people I could connect with to really, in a way, build meaningful relationships that enable more serendipity to happen. So I think there's a huge um, theme, of course, around diversity, but also importantly, this question of, you know, is, are there people who, who have similarly spirited um, motivations towards the world? Um, we can talk about, if you want to, um, about some of these experiments, how, how those people, for example, who believe they are lucky tend to be much luckier. And so if you surround yourself with those people, you will have more luck than if you surround yourself with, with, with others and so on. So there's a lot of learnings around how we can um, understand networks differently when it comes to serendipity. Oh, we have full intentions of doing diving deep into the experiments and the examples that you present. But you mentioned something really important about networks, like you know, uh, you're at NYU, uh, and you know when you look at say NYU, INSEAD, Harvard, Oxford, uh, and uh, you know other places, there's of course a consistency in networks. You're often surprised by people that you meet the diversity of their experience. But uh, I, I don't think networks in general are designed to appreciate the power of serendipity. And uh, what I found fascinating about your book is that serendipity is a mindset. So before we go into the serendipity mindset, tell us how you became an academic. You started as a community builder turned entrepreneur, uh, before that a rebel teenager. How did academia happen? And what was the process of researching this in London and New York? It was very connected to, you know, when we were building, um, you know, enterprises, communities, and so on. We were always talking about impact and making an impact and everything else. And somehow my my kind of inner, I don't know if it's the inner imposter uh, syndrome or, or, or something else, but was always saying, well, do we actually really understand what we're doing here? Like, is, is, do, or, or do we just kind of like make stuff up as we go? And so um, kind of my my, my pull, pull towards academia came a lot from that idea of really kind of being curious about the patterns behind something, the why, why is something happening and, and what can we really learn about this? And so, um, you know, at, at LZ especially, um, what, what really kept me there for, for a long time was this, this beautiful um, idea that, you know, let's try to understand the causes of things and let's try to understand why things happen. And um, what I found fascinating when doing research around uh, serendipity um, was that, you know, at the beginning, uh, people would go, oh my God, like, this is, this is, uh, you know, not a topic you can do research on. This is a topic that is anecdotal, that's kind of like about stories, but, you know, there's nothing in there that, that you could do in terms of science. And so what I found beautiful, though, is that when I first focused then on other things, such as, you know, how do you scale social impact and, and you know, on purpose-driven leadership and so on, Serendipity just popped up everywhere um, as a kind of key finding, as like a key way of how people actually facilitate um, positive impact, how they facilitate innovation and so on. And so um, in a way, what we've been trying to do now over the last couple of years was to say, okay, let's build a legit, a legit kind of framework around this, but also let's, let's try to like create a bit of a literature around this that allows us to really embed this into the academic conversation so that it can be part of curricula at top universities and other um, institutions, that it can be in high schools, that it can be 
um, in, in companies. And that's really kind of the, the big dream now to say, hey, look, like this is something I've seen work over the last 15 years now. I've seen it work in so many different contexts. Um, and now it's time to hopefully bring that, especially in those contexts where it matters the most, um, which is, you know, in a fast changing world, especially younger people who might be quite anxious about where the world is going and really kind of, in a way, giving them a toolkit that helps them to turn that kind of anxiety and uncertainty into pot potential positive outcomes. Yeah, when did you realize that you um, wanted to study it as an academic and become a professor? Because that's a long-term commitment. And uh, what I want you to really tell our listeners and viewers is that how did it feel to be a struggling, rebellious student to becoming you know, a Harvard Business Review published writer, a TED speaker, and so on and so forth? Because it's a big transition. Many times we think that you know, the studious ones in high school, you know, eventually end up uh, doing amazing things, but perhaps you're a different anomaly. Uh, what did you realize about yourself and how did it feel? You know, it's interesting because uh, quite a few of my friends who, who are entrepreneurs, you know, they had similar kind of struggles during high school. It's like this kind of idea of, you know, in a way, I, I, I would consider myself an entrepreneurial academic in terms of, you know, you're constantly trying to figure out what is something that you can push in terms of boundaries that you can try to push in terms of how you can have have a bigger impact um but but i think you know um the thing that's helped me a lot um think through those questions is having extremely good mentors who in a way and and that's you know when we talk later maybe about like kind of some key learnings also on how to navigate different types of platforms like to me you know when you look back um on life and look back on your cv you know, my CV might look quite cluttered to someone who looks at it just in terms of positions, right? Oh, he said he founded this and then he ran this and then he was an academic here and this and this. So it's like very different types of positions or like different types of careers. But actually there's there's this common denominator which is about connecting people, connecting ideas and, 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 and that meaningful change piece. It's just different platforms that at different stages in life made more sense to really scale that, to really do something with that. And I've seen that a lot with, with people I work with that their CVs at first hand or first sight look a little bit kind of like, you know, disconnected. But then once you look back and connect the dots at hindsight, you see that actually there's a lot of kind of common denominators. And, and I feel like I'm a big fan of that idea that at the end of the day, um, you know, like us trying to figure out what is that kind of, what is that thing that brings it together what is that kind of North Star or sense of direction actually then helps us also to have more serendipity going forward because it makes it easier to connect the dots to that kind of whatever it is. If it's a passion, if it's a interest that evolves. And of course that changes a lot of times over time, but a lot of times I feel the key life force actually um, is, is quite related. And so um, in my case, you know, what I enjoy most now in academia is that to your point, right? Now we've been starting to, to publish um, the serendipity related work in, in very rigorous academic papers and very rigorous academic journals. And since doing that now, it's so much easier to actually contribute also to the academic debate with that kind of concept, because essentially now it is grounded in, 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 in rigorous research. And um, I feel that again, is, is about connecting ideas to broadly in the way of how universities and companies have been structured. You know, there's been this kind of plan, this, you can do this strategy and so on. And then life happens and, and you get extremely anxious because you're like, wow, nobody told me that actually the unexpected happens all the time. And so I feel this is just a more 
realistic approach to how the world actually unfolds. And it reframes it uh, away from something that is about a weakness, about an imperfection, you know, oh my God, I didn't, I wasn't able to plan X, Y, Z. So now serendipity happened to, wow, like cultivating serendipity can be the active approach to managing uncertainty. And I think that is in a way what, what I'm most excited about to say, hey, like at the end of the day, hopefully this, this is something that is relevant for research, but more importantly for um, how we live our lives, um, you know, coming from Germany, to me, that was a, a big shift in thinking to get away from that. Oh, I have to have it mapped all out. What is the serendipity uncertainty paradox? How do people negotiate that? You mean in terms of serendipity and planning or in which way? Yeah. When you start thinking about serendipity, it's a, it's a longer term investment, right? You can't expect serendipity to happen when you want. The whole notion of serendipity is that uh, it'll happen when it feels like you can do a few things to accelerate it. But when you start, it's anxious. How did you get started? Was there a particular trigger? Um, because, you know, like going to LSE, doing a PhD, et cetera, um, that would have required a lot of forethought. So what was the thought process of the younger Christian? You know, it's interesting because we, in a way, I feel a lot of what I've experienced is very similar to what I'm, I've been seeing also in our work emerge, which is that there's a certain sense of direction, right? So a sense of direction of, okay, I want to do something that feels meaningful. I want to do something that helps connect dots. And then one day you run into a person who tells you about a project, like about, in that case, it was about sandbox, you know, where um, I would quote unquote run into um, uh, the person who would become a co-founder. Um, and, you know, the same with Leaders in Purpose, another organization we set up where I literally ran into my co-founder um, the first time in a, in a line at a conference. And then later on, we reconnected and, and talked about those ideas and then uh, developed those further. And so all these things, like everything from the, the, the PhD itself to Sandbox to do this on purpose to the position now, uh, you know, they came serendipitous in itself in the sense of there was a there was a North Star around, okay, great, like it feels like I want to do more into XYZ direction, but I wasn't really sure how exactly to do that. And then kind of, you know, some kind of opportunity pops up. And again, I think that is at the core of the serendipity mindset to say, it's, it's great to have some kind of sense of direction that helps us to navigate, that helps us to understand where approximately we want to go. But then a lot of times the really interesting things happen out of a conversation. They happen out of reading a book and making a, an association of like, you know, randomly seeing a job description on the internet, all these kind of different things. And, and we just actually finished a, um, a study with 43 of the, the world's leading CEOs. And we asked them, what is it that makes you really successful? And one of the key things that they all have in common is that they're really good at, at setting some kind of like sense of direction, you know, in a company that might be a purpose or something else. But then essentially also this, this it's not humility, but it's, 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 the, it's a respect for the unexpected. And it's, it's saying, you know what, instead of seeing the unexpected as something that will get my kind of plan derailed, I see it as something that continuously updates my plan depending on which kind of new information comes in. And, and I feel that's in a way, similarly, I felt throughout my life that, that that's been like in a way something I've believed in that in a way, if you have a certain goal, that's important because it helps you to know approximately where you're going, but then at the same time being extremely open, both of how you could get there, but also 
if that goal might change because you encounter something that that seems even more interesting and and i feel one of the key things on that journey is to develop that kind of mature gut feeling so a gut feeling that is not naive right that doesn't let you jump on the next opportunity or just like because someone tells you something exciting you jump on that but actually that mature gut feeling that is about saying how do i get as much information as i can to really like understand how that fits into my life and at the same time how do i learn to listen to my gut in a way that then combines the subconscious and the conscience and, and making that decision and i feel um that that has been something when i look back on decisions that I felt not good about in my life that felt derailed me from the things I really wanted to do they were usually based completely only on my brain because I was just kind of listening then to mentors and like you know in a way um, the kind of excel sheets uh, which one would get the most points when listing the different options versus like then trusting the gut more based on actually having gotten all information sleeping over it and then trying to figure out how it feels I feel um, that has become a major decision um, uh, approach that, that, that seemed to have worked um, more or less okay. And I've seen that similarly with, with people around me. Yeah, much more than okay. <laughs> but uh, Kristen, tell us, uh, how did you get this book? Um, how did you get the contract? What was the process of writing it? So many people want to write books, but just don't know how. Talk us through your journey. Yeah, it was serendipitous as well, uh, in, in some way. Um, so I, you know, initially wanted to write a book um, about kind of impact organizations. So in a way, a lot of my research was about the idea of how organizations increasingly want to integrate profit and purpose, but how can they do that at scale? So how can they overcome all the barriers um, that hold them back to do that at scale? And so um, you know, I was like, great, like I've been doing a bit of research around this, so let me put this all together and write a book about it. Um, and then I was on holiday with, with friends of mine and I pitched the idea and they were like, well, you know, that's interesting, but do you have other ideas as well? Which essentially is, is the British way of saying, well, nah, maybe, maybe not. Um, and so, you know, in that moment, the thing that came to mind was like, wow, actually the one thing that has been a life philosophy to me and, and a daily practice is, is serendipity and cultivating serendipity. So um, that was around, well, a couple of years ago where we had that kind of um, conversation and I sat the whole night then literally writing down everything that came to mind, going into every different types of research that I've ever done where serendipity popped up, trying to understand again from the past with Sandbox and other organizations, where did serendipity pop up? What was it about it? And really kind of then taking that into a book proposal um, and uh, I found it extremely useful, by the way, to then, in a way, write a book proposal, um, especially for there's this Financial Times um, McKinsey Break and Bauer Prize for book proposals. And I highly recommend that because it forces one to really distill what is the core of the message, what is the core potential audience, what is the core um, platform that could help to, to really bring that to light. And um, it helped me a lot structure that kind of like process. Um, and then I think when going through some of these motions, um, that then uh, kind of led me to, to meet a couple of agents. That's, that, that was the first step to really kind of um, discuss with potential agents who then connect with the publishers. Um, I, you know, I, I wasn't aware that in a way you wouldn't directly go to a publisher, but you actually would, um, would need to go through an agent who then connects with the publishers. And then, you know, there were a lot of um, steps, I guess, in between um, then getting an agent and then um, pitching to publishers and then going through those different journeys. Um, but I found that fascinating. And I found it fascinating. I mean, with this book now, 
when you look at the different covers. So if you, um, the UK and the international edition, they have a cover where it says serendipity mindset and then it shows different dots that could connect. And I remember um, going through like to the UK publisher and they were like, great, like let's make this very kind of, you know, scientific looking and here's the dots. And then I went to the American publisher and they were like, okay, well, let's all make it about get lucky and here's a clover, uh, a clover uh, and, and let's make it about the, the luck aspect. And so I found it also fascinating to see culturally how differently one frames the messaging, one frames the, the approach to it. And I think that's something I've, I'm still learning in terms of how to, in a way, understand, um, you know, how do you take a mindset that is global in a way that has, you know, a lot of the research has been from around the world, um, but then in a way, um, you know, package it towards um, the, the local audiences. Well, let's say that what's the French serendipity mindset versus the German serendipity mindset versus the British versus the Indian versus the American. National or cultural differences in which people approach serendipity and what advice to them before we dive to specific examples that you talk about in the book. Because you briefly broke up. Um, would you mind repeating the question, please? Uh, yes, I was just asking about uh, the national differences that occur between say, the French serendipity mindset versus the German serendipity mindset and the American. Like, are there or are there not uh, differences in which people look at serendipity based on nationality? Yeah, it's interesting because if you look at, I mean, I come from Germany where, you know, we grow up with a planning mindset and you want to map everything out. And so, um, you know, that mindset is, is probably on one side of the, the spectrum. And then you have the kind of, you know, in Kenya, for example, you have the extremely entrepreneurial into the day, let's create things that's, that's, that's consistently kind of iterate um, approach. And so I do feel there's a, almost like a continuum of how people intuitively do that. Um, I just had a wonderful conversation with a friend of mine in, in Mumbai, where, you know, um, one of the things there is that the serendipity mindset comes very natural to a lot of people who would say, oh my God, like you're describing my way of life. Thank you for giving me a language. Um, and I feel, um, you know, in, in kind of very entrepreneurial cultures, that's where the serendipity mindset in a way comes extremely natural because it is already the way of life of people. And it gives them legitimacy to doing things where, um, previously, it might have seen, oh my God, there's absolutely no plan if you do X, Y, Z. It's like, oh no, but there is a certain plan, but you're kind of iterating around that um, and, and cultivating serendipity versus in other cultures, it's a bit more um, where it is a way that is, is, is more new to people. But then actually those uh, also buy deeply into it uh, because it is almost like, oh my God, I didn't know I can actually live life in this and this way. And so it helps me to actually then be less anxious about when a plan doesn't work in X, Y, Z ways and so on. So I do feel on that continuum, um, uh, there's certainly uh, yeah, big differences. Yes, but there are some things that transcend cultures uh, and uh, perhaps age groups. Uh, what is, uh, what's your advice? Can are some people more lucky than others? And if yes, uh, what do you think differentiates, quote unquote, a lucky person versus an unlucky person? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's a whole array, but um, one of my favorites is around um, an experiment that like, a, a colleague has done um, where they, uh, it was for the BBC, like a very kind of entertaining uh, experiment, but that shows some of the 
uh, core uh, insights, which is really, they pick one person who self-identifies as very lucky. So someone who says, good things always happen to me. And then someone who self-identifies as very unlucky. So someone who says, bad things tend to happen to me. I tend to be in accidents and so on. And they tell both people walk down the street, go into the coffee shop, order a coffee and sit down, and then we'll have an interview. What they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras across the streets and in the coffee shop, that there's a five pound note in front of the coffee shop and inside the coffee shop, the table that's, or the seat that's empty is next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big dreams happen. Now the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, has a nice conversation, they exchange business cards, potential opportunity coming out of it, we don't know that. Now the unlucky person goes uh, down the street, steps over the five pound note, so doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, and that's it. Now at the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, it was amazing. I made new friends, I found money in the street, and you know, potential opportunity, we don't know that part. Now, the unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happens. And you see here the importance of framing, right? That when you believe that the unexpected will happen or you believe that, that you are lucky, then in a way you tend to open your mind a bit more, you tend to see those things more. Um, but also you see, of course, the element that extroversion can be helpful, right? If you actually start that conversation with a businessman, it can be of help. But what I've been um, fascinated by is, you know, I'm a closet introvert. So I I have no, no problem speaking in front of a lot of people, but then afterwards I'm hiding in the restroom because I'm like, oh my God, this is, um, I, I need to recharge now first. And so it's, it's that kind of idea that I've always looked for ways of having serendipity without having to consistently engage with people. And, um, you know, there's a lot of ways of how that happens, but I think a key takeaway is that serendipity also a lot of times comes out of silent sources. It comes from, you know, taking another way to walk, uh, to work and see something in the window that you unexpectedly connect to a podcast idea, or you go into an old bookstore and you see an old title that uh, gives you an idea for a company, right? So it's kind of these things where it's, it's about that open mind, that alertness, that curiosity, but also then the ability to connect dots and to do something with it. And that's how then across all areas, you can, you can make more serendipity happen. And um, we can talk about some of the practices, but uh, the long story short here is that there is a huge difference between those people who consider themselves to be lucky and those who don't, but also more importantly, that's not necessarily a given. We can work on this and we can then work on having more luck by doing a couple of practices. So do introverts have uh, an advantage or a disadvantage when it comes to hacking the serendipity mindset? Well, I mean, extroverts have, have a bit of an advantage when it comes to you know, the, the potential amount of interactions that could lead to serendipity, right? The more um, you speak with relevant people, the more you keep in touch with relevant people, uh, the more you, you know, get back in touch with people, the higher the probability in general that something might happen. I mean, it, it literally is a lot of times a numbers game, but, um, you know, introverts have the huge advantage that a lot of times they might be reflective. They might uh, a lot of times actually help extroverts to make sense out of uh, certain interactions, but also they, they might be the ones who, you know, find those serendipitous things in, in silent sources. Um, and as you, you might have seen in your own life, a lot of times serendipity anyways has an incubation time, right? So you might have this eureka moment on a Sunday morning in the shower, but actually that was your brain connecting dots for you because you gave it a lot of information before that. And so introverts a lot of times 
um, because they might read, because they might look into different types of themes, um, have, have that kind of serendipity happen uh, to them as well. So um, I guess the, the thing here is that if you look at the continuum between introversion and extroversion, um, both sides have some kind of advantages and disadvantages, uh, but also there's a lot of things we can work on um, no matter where we are on that spectrum. That's excellent. So talk us through some strategies that all of us can employ to make serendipity work for us. Are there some hacks? Are there some strategies? Are there some researches that are available? Yeah, so one of my favorites is the hook strategy. The hook strategy is something, uh, so a friend of mine in London, Oli Barrett, if you would ask him something like, what do you do? You know, the dreaded question that you ask at a conference or else, he would say something like, I'm an education entrepreneur, uh, recently read into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. So what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I recently started hosting piano matinees, you should come by. Oh my God, such a coincidence. Um, my sister is teaching the philosophy of science. You should give a guest lecture. The point here is that we can use every conversation, every interaction to see, to cast a couple of hooks, to see the couple of dots that the other person can connect for us. You know, so um, I do, for example, things like when I'm late for a call and it's a call with, let's say, my publisher or something. Um, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Just had a conversation about X, Y, Z relevant thing, um, but now I'm here and so excited. And so I'm seeding a couple of extra sentences sometimes where other people might talk about like the weather or, or other things. Like I'm, I'm trying to seed a couple of those types of, of things. And I've, 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 I've seen that to be very effective in terms of cultivating potential um, serendipity. One thing I've, I've found extremely helpful in companies and organizations is uh, the, the so-called project funeral or post-mortem, where the idea is that usually in companies, when something doesn't work out, we try to hide it, right? We try to not talk about it. But actually, a lot of serendipity comes out of making accidents meaningful. And so in the example of the project funeral, as a practice, the idea is that when something doesn't work out, we lay it to rest in front of people from other divisions, or, you know, it could be uh, in families, it could be family members and it could be clients. It doesn't matter, like as long as it is people who could meaningfully connect the dots. And so in this one company, they developed this window frame and the idea was that it wouldn't reflect the light. And so it's an amazing technology, but they didn't realize that the market wasn't big enough. And so they laid it to rest and they said, next time we'll try to understand the market better. Now someone in the audience goes, hey, hey, have you considered what this would mean for solar? Have you considered if you take that technology and put it into a solar context, how amazing that could be in terms of absorbing energy. And that's how coincidentally their solar division or part of their solar division emerged. Like, you know, nobody saw it coming. By definition, nobody can see the positive unexpected outcome that could happen. But by setting up a ritual, a practice um, that could potentially lead to it, they made it more probable that something like this would happen. And in the process, you know, you build trust, you, you bring people closer together. And to your earlier point, Akash, that's really, where you also see how building meaningful relationships between people and serendipity a lot of times go hand in hand. That is fascinating, Christian. You've got uh, phenomenal people to endorse the book, like uh, Reid Hoffman, Ariana Huffington, and a lot of really interesting people. How did you get to them? How did you let them appreciate the serendipity mindset? Were they already uh, bought into the idea or how did it work? to be proponents of the book? Yeah, no, it, it was definitely, uh, it depends. I mean, some 
uh, you know, would be uh, relations of relations of relations. Others would be I met at a conference and then we reconnected and, and shared some ideas. Um, others would be kind of lobbying for a very long time and, and then um, uh, coming to that point. So I think uh, it depended, but I think the long story short is that that it 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 definitely took quite a few iterations and and quite a few um, you know um, um, quite some time to. Um, in a way, um, share the message, but also then have those conversations that then lead to that point. Um, and so I think in general, one of the things that I took from that process, um, as with a lot of other processes related to, uh, in general, serendipity in life, um, is really to start as early as possible, because uh, those conversations, of course, take quite some time. And, um, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a, a very interesting journey. Yeah, huge congrats to all that you've done. Uh, you know, to wrap up, just walk us through a day of life today. Uh, you're uh, the program director, one of the leaders of a, of, of a really interesting in initiative or a program or a master's at NYU. Uh, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis and how do you encourage your students to partake of the serendipity mindset? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, my day, I've been... A big beneficiary of uh, Paul Graham's idea of the makeovers manager schedule. So to, in a way, protect some maker time. So this idea that um, I try to protect some time in the mornings where I literally schedule a meeting with myself and and um, then I, I I write papers, I, I do research, I write strategy stuff. So the things that 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 are important but not that urgent, but those things uh, to really protect them. And then kind of in the afternoon or uh, late morning and, and afternoon and evening. Are then kind of the the rest of you know managing things and uh, meeting people and so on and um, so I feel that that has been a big shift in my life to realize that um, then essentially it feels you get both the important and the urgent done um, in my daily work you know the day then would be okay great in the mornings is the more conceptual uh, things and then you know there's teaching um, I'm teaching a couple of courses around impact investing uh, around purpose driven leadership um, around emerging markets. Um, so they are all about, uh, a lot of them are about how do we essentially develop future fit organizations and businesses and how do we uh, develop a capitalism that is more inclusive. And um, that's our um, uh, global economy program at the, at the Center for Global Affairs here. Um, and then with the students, we work a lot around that question, right? How do you essentially develop mindsets that are ready, you know, that make you ready for a world that is changing so fast? So how do you from day one develop different types of relationships with everyone from professors to adjunct professors to people who come in as guest lecturers to not only connect with them once you need something, but actually to already now develop meaningful relationships to, to have that kind of, we talked about surface areas earlier. Um, and, and so to really have that kind of social capital surface area from day one, and then in a way that also becomes your serendipity surface area at some point. Um, and so uh, a lot of these conversations are really about the, the point of to not wait for these things until the end, but to actually start from day one um, to be really um, thoughtful about with whom to connect, how to connect, and uh, do that in ways that uh, that feel authentic to one. Yeah, and you started by uh, setting up the vision of, say, a serendipity accelerator, and now you're evangelizing this idea at a global scale. Uh, how much of your life and career is a function of luck, and how much is it of hard work and any parting thoughts for our subscribers, our listeners, uh, and so forth? Well, that's that's what I find most um, you know intriguing about that idea of serendipity mindset. That 
in a way it's 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 getting away from saying it's either luck or hard work but rather to the idea of you're working hard to get lucky and 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 what i mean with this is to really say that if you think about like looking back in life when i look back in my life when i'm sure um listeners look back on their lives a lot of times the most beautiful things that especially those that unexpectedly emerge they need a lot of tenacity and grit right like it's not just i don't know running into someone in a coffee shop and falling in love it's like actually then working for it going on dates like you know turning that into into a beautiful relationship or the same with you know it's not just about running into a potential co-founder it's about actually building something with them and then making it a quote-unquote happy ending in the end and so i think it's 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 really that idea that at the end of the day um i i'm a big fan of this idea um it's related to john lennon's um he, he had a couple of beautiful sayings around this but it's it's really this idea of if you want to have a, a happy ending it depends on when you stop the story and and serendipity is so much about a positive unexpected outcome but you can only have this if you really go through with it and you know i've i've had experiences in my life um for example breakups where in the moment it felt terrible right but then later on you realize wow that was probably the best thing um for everyone to set us on a certain path or xyz and so it's really um i think that the long story short version that um, tenacity and grit um, actually are a precursor a lot of times of having quote-unquote luck in the in the long run um, but also I think it's extremely important and, and just as a caveat that um, while there is a mindset that helps us to can you know to help to be more lucky um, our base levels are very different right if you a lot of my work is in sub-saharan Africa and if you're a kid somewhere in the Cape Flats in Cape Town um, your base level of where you're starting out in terms of potential serendipity is so much lower, right, than me sitting here in the West Village in New York and having access to education and networks. And so while we work on the mindset question, we have to, of course, work on structural inequalities, racial inequalities, gender inequalities. Um, and so I think that's also something I'm, I'm super excited about. Um, and I think as a parting thought, um, you know, if I had to summarize our conversation, I think also the mindset that, that we are sharing um, and, and why I'm delighted to be here is really that, that idea, right, that we cannot always pick the situation, but we, we can pick our response to the situation. And I think especially at the moment, um, that's why I'm so fascinated by Viktor Frankl's work, because I think in COVID times, you know, where I, a lot of things feel very like, you know, we feel powerless, we feel there's a lot of things we can't influence. But then focusing on those few things that we can still influence, I feel that then makes the difference in the long run. And so uh, hopefully, I hope our conversation helps contribute a little bit to that. And yeah, I'm delighted to keep in touch. And thanks so much again for, for having me. Uh, it's entirely our pleasure. You know, they say that every story is a happy story when you know where to put an end to it. But I feel that, you know, our story is just starting. We look forward to hosting you as a faculty in our entrepreneurship bootcamp and so forth. But it's been a fascinating conversation, Christian, with the way you've deconstructed your own life and uh, the way you followed your curiosity and interspersed it with serendipity. I think it'll inspire hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Thank you so much for your time. It really was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much.